Tragic situation. Uh, the count four victims dead, 17 in hospital after this despicable terror act in Vienna, Austria. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for the time. I uh, wish this was under happier circumstances. This is a terrible story. It's terrible, Bill. And I know that you and I, you know, generally talk when things like of this nature happen, but this is um, this is a current wave of things. And, you know, that was not just Vienna, it was Nice, it was Paris. A lot of uh, police forces, Bill, in Europe are on high alert right now. For some, I've heard of uh, rumors of other attacks that have been followed in the past 24 to 48 hours. So, yeah, this is, a, this is a very dangerous time, especially for our Western European allies today. Why does this happen in waves? It just seems, you're right, um, it's rarely an isolated incident. There seems to be a pattern here. Well, I think certainly some people are inspired by others. They see what's happened and say, hey, I can do that. And the, the beauty, if I can use that term, of some of these terrorist attacks is that they're very low tech. You don't need, you know, to fly a plane into a building. You can pick up a, a we've seen machete attacks. We've seen sword attacks. We've seen knife attacks. We saw a golf club, for God's sakes, in Canadian Tire a couple years ago by a yeah. wannabe ISIS fighter. The simplicity of the attacks, the attention you, you know you're going to get, the, you know, world events, whether it's the Muhammad cartoons or the elections in the United States or whatever, just seems to bring people out and saying that, hey, I can be famous too for my 15 minutes in, a, in an Andy Warhol kind of way. So I'm not surprised that they occur in waves. I think that people simply get to the point where they say, it's my time to do it, and I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab the ring now. It always raises the specter, though, as to whether or not this is a, a, an organized effort. And, and uh, I, I know that, you know, ever since we saw 9-11 and, and some of the stuff that was going on with al-Qaeda and some other groups uh, that do have organizations uh, where there is a chain of command, uh, do you get the sense that these are just people that are, are looking for their 15 minutes of fame at, at any cost to human life? I do, Bill. Um, you're right. Historically, we had a much more sort of, uh, you know, top-down control and command with al-Qaeda and Islamic State. But what these terrorist groups have done over the past couple of years, especially since the demise of the caliphate in, in 2019, is they've engaged in what I call the Nike brand of terrorism, just do it. They put propaganda out, Bill. They give ideas. They, they stoke people up. They wrap them up to do things. And then they simply wait back and see what happens. And then often what you'll see in the aftermath is that ISIS will claim something it had nothing to do with because it furthers its agenda. It, it, it frightens people to, to show that, I, hey, you know, remember ISIS, the guys you, that you claimed that you defeated? Well, guess what? We're still around, and we're inspiring people in Vienna and Nice and in Stockholm and in London and in Toronto and Scarborough. So, yeah, you guys didn't defeat us. We're still a force to be reckoned with. So I do see these as more or less one-offs by people who are simply inspired by the brand and want to do something. And as we've just said, get their 50 minutes of fame. Are there cells, though, especially in Europe, it seems that it seems to be more predominant. And I'm not naive enough to say, well, it's not happening over here, thank God. We know it is, that there are sympathizers over here, too. But even if there aren't people that necessarily want to act on this, uh, are, are they sympathetic to this? Are they people who frequent some of these websites uh, where this sort of thing is, is encouraged? Uh, absolutely. We, we've known for years, even here in Canada, Bill, when I worked at Thesis, the vast majority of people were wannabes that followed the propaganda online. Sometimes they would contribute. They would download this stuff. They watch videos. We had cases of people, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day consuming this garbage. I, I don't go as far as to call them cells per se, because that indicates a, a sense of organization, like the Toronto 18. Remember those back in 2005? Yeah. That was yeah. a real cell. I mean, they had, they knew each other. They planned together. These are more or less just individuals who are in contact online and not necessarily in the, in, you know, in the offline world. And uh, they basically get enough information and inspiration to do something. And, yeah, we do have them here in Canada, and I'd be surprised if we don't see more attacks here in Canada. 
the bottom line, Bill, about all this is that, you know, you and I have been talking for years about this phenomenon. And it worries me that everyone seems to think that, you know, the Islamist extremists have gone away. It's all about the far right now. It's all about, you know, the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys and, and, and the soldiers of Odin and all those kinds of guys. And I'm not dismissing the threat those guys pose. But if you look at terrorist attacks around the world, not just what happened in Vienna and Paris, but around the world on a daily basis, 99.9% of them are carried out by jihadis, by Islamist extremists. So let's please not pretend these guys don't pose a much, a much greater threat to, to our security than the right wing does. They do, even here in Canada, I would argue. But Paris, uh, you mentioned Nice and Paris, and of course now uh, what's going on in Vienna. There, there's, there's, there seems to be a concentration of it there, Phil. And and, and I, I know that you know once we start listing them, but there seems to be an awful lot of activity in the European capitals. Yeah, and, that, and that's for complicated reasons. I think certainly in a country like France, there's a history of having taken in a large immigrant wave in the 60s and 50s and 70s, whereby people were coming to get jobs. Uh, fairly lower class. There is obviously there's racism in France towards Muslims, towards the ex-colonials in Algeria and Morocco and places like that. I've been to parts of, of Paris where, you know, you don't want to get, go out at night because it's that bad in terms of crime. So there is a sense of sort of a lower class phenomenon. Less so in Austria that I know of. And uh, although like, Sweden has its problem, uh, you know, England has its problem. But I don't want to oversimplify the situation because not everybody who does this is a guy on you know, on welfare or a guy who feels discriminated against. Some of these people are actually doing, doing fairly well, you know, in their lives. They're well-adjusted people. They're part of society, and they're still inspired by this. And this is the conundrum we face is that we can't profile this stuff, Bill. If it was all about people on welfare, that would make it easier for CSIS and the RCMP, but it's not. We've got people with PhDs. We've got people with families. We've got people. We had a doctor, for God's sakes, back in 2010, part of a plot in Ottawa. And so when you can't profile it, it means you have to, you know, based on the intelligence you have, the information you have, both domestically and internationally, to try to put these pieces together. And I would, I would caution against an oversimplistic look at what is driving all this stuff. But when this happens, and we've already seen evidence of this on social media, even with this most recent attack, Phil, there is pushback, and, and there's the characterization that, ah, oh, they're all the same. You know, they're all jihadists, and, and God knows there's some people in high public office that, that you know, validate that sort of stuff on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, so that's, that's part of the result of this, uh, quite aside from the terror and the death that this one caused. Uh, is that part of the plan, too, to... to, to to make sure that, that, in other words, to to, other, to rile other people that, that might want to join the cause and say, you're right, all these other people hate our guts, it's, it's time for us to do something? Almost like in, a recruitment tool? In a way. So, Bill, you and I are old enough. Remember playing pickup baseball when you were a kid, trying yeah. to decide who was up at bat first? Yeah. And you put one fist over the other? This is what these guys are doing. They're basically, they're, they're outgunning and they're outperforming each other. So the, the Islamist extremist does something, and then you get a far-right attack against a mosque, for example. And the Islamist extremists say, look at that. And I think a prime example of this actually took place, if memory serves me correct, um, in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, where there were some major attacks against mosques, which invited attacks against Christian churches, which invited more attacks, attacks against mosques. So you do get a ramping up, and they do feed against each other, because they're both hateful, intolerant people at, its, at their core, Bill. And, and they want to cause mayhem, and they, it, it, and they have no tolerance for anything that's not like them. So yes, I think that you do have these sort of one-upmanship games when it comes to terrorism. I'm not saying it's planned that way. You just have a lot of actors together from different sides of the spectrum, and they see what's happening with the other side doing, and they say, well, you did that to my people. I'm doing this to your people. And there's basically a lot of hatred on both sides, and it, and it gets us in a much worse situation. So, again, 
the jihadis pose by far great, the greatest threat as far as I'm concerned. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the, the reaction by the far right and, the, and you, know, the, you know, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists isn't also something to worry about. But uh, clearly there's concern here maybe about copycats because I know there's a stay-at-home order in Vienna right now. They don't want kids going to school. They don't want people wandering on the streets and that's absolutely necessary. Almost I, I, I'm thinking, Phil, is there's an anticipation that there, there could be another shoe drop here. Yeah, and, and my also my understanding on this particular story is that officials are not sure they got everybody, i.e. they think there may be more people involved in this particular time in Vienna. So in other words, this may have been a cell, as you, you were referring to earlier. They may have identified their intelligence service. They may have identified members. Don't forget, this guy that carried the pack in Vienna, he was in jail because yeah. he wanted to join ISIS a couple of years ago. He was sentenced and he got out early. So he may have made friends in jail who also have been released. So I think that the security services, which are they're a small security service, but they're competent, and the, the law enforcement authorities are just making sure that they, they know where everybody is, uh, who is intending on doing on taking kind of action, and they want to make sure that no one else gets killed or injured in the, in the way that what happened the other night in Vienna. So how do we defend against something like this? I mean, we've talked in the past about this, Phil, and I know you were involved in this years ago. Uh, the agencies that, that have eyes on this, that are tracking this, and as you say, they knew of this individual before. You, you can't be everywhere all the time, and you can't be tracking all these people all the time. Uh, but there is a methodology that's being used, is there not? There is. And so obviously CSIS and the RCMP in our country they have the legislative mandate to identify people, to investigate them. In the case of CSIS, there's a mechanism to share intelligence with the RCMP, which allows them to launch their own independent investigation, which could lead to arrests and criminal charges. Both agencies, to the best of my knowledge, are, are, are operating flat out right now, Bill, and COVID's just making things that's much more complicated. I just hope the Trudeau government realizes that these organizations need to be staffed to their full complement. In fact, they need to have their, their staffing increased because we're dealing with a multiplicity of threats. Again, it's not just the jihadis, it's the far right. There could be a burgeoning far left in extremist movement in this country at some point as well. I think we have the agencies that are competent to do this. We just have to make sure that they have the resources. On the other side, there's the whole, how do you prevent that thing? That's a whole other conversation, Bill, that would take us hours to get through. Suffice to say that there are some things you probably can do to try to prevent people from consuming this kind of stuff, including taking down hateful material on the internet, but you know as well as I do, that's a whack-a-mole game because you take down one and 10 more come up tomorrow. So, uh, you know, I'm biased having worked for CSIS. I just hope that my colleagues have the, the men and women they need to do their investigations properly so we can stop things like, like what happened in Vienna and in Nice and Paris from happening here in Canada. Do they have those resources? I mean, no. governments are always into austerity. You know that, Phil. And, you know, where they can cut a buck, they'll cut a buck. Uh, and not always necessarily be with, no, with full knowledge of the ramifications of it. Uh, and, and you would think, and, and you've just identified two areas here, obviously with the jihadis that are still around, and we need to remember that. Uh, but now a threat from the far right, too, is some of the groups that we've talked about. And, and of course, they've got sympathizers on this side of the border. That's not just an American problem. You would think that governments of both countries uh, would be aware of that and cognizant of that and putting the, proper, the appropriate uh, you know, uh, facilities and, 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 and funding, I guess, into stuff like this to make sure that we are in guard. I have bad news for you, Bill. Oh, yeah. I don't think this government understands national security. I don't think it sees it as a priority. Um, that certainly was my experience in working in intelligence in Canada. Um, I hope that they get those types of resources and that they understand that this is necessary. But you're right. You know, we're working with an, with an austerity budget. I mean, how, how much are we in debt over COVID? It's like a trillion dollars or something. Yeah. So yeah. there'll be calls on all fronts to start, you know, paring back. 
and cutting and cutting staff as opposed to hiring staff. And that's a tough call to make. I mean, you know, security intelligence is not the only priority in the room. You know, there's obviously people that are suffering because of the, the economic crisis over COVID. There are a lot of hands going up right now for funding, and they all have to be listened to. I just hope that uh, there's at least some attention paid to national security. But I do know, you know, categorically, you never have enough resources to investigate everybody. When I, was, when I left CSIS in 2015, there really was no significant far-right investigation because we just didn't see it as a threat back then. That's changed, obviously. But sure. the question becomes, where do you get the resources from to look at the far-right? You take them off something else. You take them off Islamist extremism. You take it off counterintelligence investigations against the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, these re- you, don't, you can't just invent resources tomorrow. I don't know that they've been given more, more money or more resources like we did after. We, we made it like bandit bill after 9-11. We all got a ton of money and a ton of resources. Those days are yeah, over. We were, we were so, scared. We were, and, and rightfully so, because we didn't know when the, when the other shoe was going to drop. And, in fact, we do see some major cells like the Toronto 18 in the mid-2000s like the Ottawa crew, like the, you know, the BC crew. I mean, there are a whole bunch of plots that we, we were able to uh, foil thanks to the RCMP and CSIS. I'm guessing that, that my colleagues are, are, again, I said it before, are going flat out with what they're doing. They're doing the best they can with the resources, but it's, uh, you know, expecting them to be perfect is unreasonable, and yet that's what the public expects. Because as I said before to you, when you work in security intelligence or law enforcement, you're only as good as your last failure. So when you mess up and people die, it's your fault. Regardless of whether you didn't have enough resources or money or time, you're expected to be 100 for 100. And as the IRA told Margaret Thatcher, Bill, way back in the 1990s or 80s, you have to get lucky 100% of the time. We have to get lucky once. All these guys are getting lucky. Exactly. Well, you know how government works anyway. I mean, if they've got five guys that are monitoring, you know, Internet for activity like this, and did you catch any bad guys today? No. Well, probably you just need two then. Well, these other three positions are, are redundant. And, and then we, you know, we, we're the ones that pay the price for it. And the, the best example of that, you and I talked about this, remember the, the thwarted attack uh, of the guy that was going after the mosque in London over in the Cherry Hill District in London a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and if it weren't for the five eyes, and I think it was somebody in the U.K. that actually uh, said, hey, look out for this guy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's one thing. I'm glad you raised that point, Bill, because we have tremendous relationships, not just with our five eyes. You know, CSIS has this ability under what's called Section 17 of its act, the CSIS Act, to enter into a sharing relationship with any intelligence service anywhere in the universe. And I certainly, you know, visited many countries with which we shared intelligence. They gave us some, we gave them some, and that's been great. We, we have a, we're a partner in good standing with a lot of countries around the world who are like-minded, who can share intelligence, share best practices. And, and that's a good thing. And, you know, um, I hope that continues. And I, because they're just as strapped for resources as we are. And I think it, the only way to get around and get by this problem is if we all work together to try to identify the people who pose a threat, investigate them, stop them, arrest them, charge them, and incarcerate them before they do something nasty. Phil, always a pleasure and always reassuring uh, to get you on the program to talk about after these uh, horrendous events. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks very much, Bill. We'll talk soon. You too. Stay, stay well. Phil Gursky, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, of course, former member of uh, CSIS. Today's video is brought to you by my latest book, When Religion Kills, a look at how the so-called faithful in many religions advocate murder in the name of their God. Buy it today. Just click on the link in the text portion of this podcast.